James chapter 1, beginning at verse 13. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then when lust is conceived, it gives birth to sin, and when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. You see that. As we've been going through the book of Matthew, and you noticed I didn't use Matthew, but I mentioned to you last week that we would elaborate upon the temptations of Jesus and the pattern that he set for us. And having looked in Matthew at what Matthew has conveyed to us, inspired as he is, we have taken a look at Jesus' baptism. And what that meant, we've taken a look last week at his temptations in the wilderness. And note that his, in his baptism, we made the, the comment that Jesus, being sinless, was nonetheless baptized. He had nothing to repent of. So why was he baptized? And we noted that according to Matthew 3, verse 15, because he says, John... We must fulfill all righteousness. Baptize me, because John didn't want to baptize him. Because John says, you should baptize me. I'm unworthy to even unlatch your, your sandals. But Jesus is the mediator of the new covenant. And his incarnation into this world was for one purpose, to redeem his people. That is why the Son of God came. And in his baptism, we saw that Jesus officially uh, and publicly, through his baptism, identifies with his people. He is in union with his elect people that he has come to save. He is their substitute. And he will pay the penalty for their transgressions. And he will live a perfect life for his people. So in a real sense... All our hopes laid with Jesus. If he fails, there's no hope for us. If he succeeds, we have been saved. Now, part of his mediatorship, we noted, is that he is referred to in the Scriptures as the last Adam. And as the last Adam, he is going to have victory over the devil. In the wilderness. And it's in the wilderness that uh, the devil will come and tempt him. Now we noted that it's no coincidence that the Bible says it wasn't the devil that led him into the wilderness. It was the Holy Spirit that led him into the wilderness. Not to lead him into the wilderness. uh, Not to lead him into temptation to fail. But to lead him into the wilderness so that the Son of God the mediator, could win the victory, not for himself, but for us. It's all about the victory for us. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 45 through 47, uh, mentions that there are two Adams. It says that the first Adam, the first man, was earthy. But the last Adam, Jesus, was a life-giving spirit. And as 1 Corinthians 15, 22 says, all those in Adam died, 
Likewise, all those in Christ shall be made alive. So it, it's whoever are you in union with. So the temptations of Jesus is very important to his mediatorship. The first Adam failed, did he not, as the representative head of the human race. And therefore, as a result of his failure, he brought sin and misery into the human race. We saw last week how Jesus prevailed over all the temptations the devil brought. He resisted the devil, and he sent the devil fleeing, the scripture says. And always keep this in mind, that in his capacity as the mediator, whatever Jesus does, he doesn't do for himself. He does it for us. Everything he does is for us. His people, uh, his victory over temptation was not for himself. His victory over temptation was for us. Now, yes, it proved that he was the perfect one, the Lamb of God, that who, would, who, as John the Baptist said, who would come and, as it were, <clears throat> be the Lamb of God to forgive uh, all those who belong to him. But it's, it's for us that he came. So he, Jesus, is our champion. Jesus is our federal representative. Everything laid with him. So in his spiritual battle with Satan in the wilderness, we saw that Jesus set a pattern for victory. Did he not? And how did he do that? He quotes scripture. Remember, every, every temptation, Jesus quoted some scripture, relevant scripture. And to say that we don't live by bread alone. You shall not tempt the Lord your God. You shall worship him and him only. That's how he refuted the devil. Now, simply quoting the Scripture, now Jesus set a pattern for us. But simply quoting the Scripture without believing will do none of us any good. We've got to know the Scriptures, but we need to know it and believe it and apply it. So I mentioned last week that the, the topic of victory over temptation would be the, the, the nature of the message this week. And that we would expand that because it's important. He wanted it for us. He set the pattern for us. And we want to take a look at what that pattern specifically is for us to prevail in our temptations. And this is why I read James chapter 1, verses 13 through 15. Now, while it is important to note that Jesus won the ultimate victory over sins, this doesn't mean that, and you're probably already aware of this, aren't you? It doesn't mean that we're always going to prevail ourselves over the devil's temptations. Uh, fighting temptation, fighting sin is part of the process of what the Bible calls sanctification. Uh, but praise the Lord that my salvation doesn't rest upon my own battles. This is why we need a Savior. We need a Savior because we are weak. And, and so in saying that our salvation it doesn't rest upon our own spiritual battles, it doesn't mean that our spiritual battles aren't important because they are very important. So I ask you, do you want to have peace in your life? 
Do you want to have peace in your family? Do you want to have a meaningful life the way God designed mankind to be? To walk with Him? To commune with Him? To have that meaningful life that Jesus won for you and me? Scripture reveals that Satan wants to destroy us. He wants to destroy us. He wants to destroy our families. Uh, and that's why the Bible calls him, one of the names for him is Abaddon, the destroyer. He's also called the tempter. And another name for him, he's also called the accuser of the brethren. And as diabolical as Satan is, what does the scripture say? He still can be resisted. Take a look at James. Just turn over to James chapter 4. Look at verses 7 through 10. It reads, Submit therefore to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he'll draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable, and mourn, and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning, and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord, and he will exalt you. I'll discuss this passage more fully a little bit later in the message. But for the time being, take a look at the exhortations in those few verses. Submit to God. Resist the devil. Cleanse your hands. Purify your hearts. And yes, be miserable and mourn for your sins. And humble yourselves in the presence of God. These are the exhortations. And later I'll elaborate on this more fully. Of how you do battle with the devil. And how, well, and how you do battle with that problem which is within us all. Brethren, this is how we do battle with the great adversary. And this is how we do battle with him. Not in the flesh but by the power of the Spirit of God. And in the power of the Spirit of God, we can resist the devil. And what is the promise given right here? Resist him and he will flee. Now the devil res uh, was res uh, resisted by Jesus and what does the Scripture say? He fled. And <clears throat> so therefore... We can resist them as well. may not be of the same magnitude, obviously, as Jesus, but the Scripture gives us that promise. And so, but if you and I are going to have that victory in life, we must, and I emphasize, must avail ourselves of the means of grace and, the, and His commands that are set forth in Scripture for us. If we set aside those means that God has given, how do we expect to win the battle against those sins that are so easy to beset, as the Scripture says, and the destroyer who wants to destroy us? We have to avail ourselves of that means. And so in our struggles against temptation, we've got to understand the nature of of the battle. That is very important, you understand the nature of the battle. And in understanding the nature of the battle, you have to understand yourself. 
That's part of winning the battle, is understanding who we are and what we are in Christ. Now, while Jesus won the victory over the devil every time, how could he do that? Well, we discussed that last week. Because he's impeccable. The doctrine of the impeccability of Christ. Meaning, he was incapable of sinning because he is the God-man. Because he has a, a divine nature in union with the human nature. Well, brethren, in our struggle against sin, we don't have that same luxury that Jesus had. You and I don't, aren't, don't have that divine nature of the essence of God. Yeah, the Bible talks about having divine nature, but it never says that we are God. But Jesus was God and is God. He could prevail every time. We can't, even, even though the Bible tells us to be engaged in the fight. And so in this... <clears throat> In this reality, we realize that while the bondage to sin is broken in the life of the Christian, it is not, the sin nature is not completely eradicated. Turn with me to Romans chapter 7, and we take a look at verses 18 through 25. Romans 7, beginning at verse 18 through 25. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For the wishing is present in me, but the doing of the good is not. For the good that I wish, I do not do. But I practice the very evil thing I do not wish. But if I am doing the very thing I do not wish, I'm no longer the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. I find then the principle that evil is present in me, the one who wishes to do good. For I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man. But I see a different law in the members of my body waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin, which is in my members. Wretched man that I am, who shall set me free from the body of this death? Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then on the one hand, I myself with my mind am serving the law of God, but on the other with my flesh, the law of sin. As long as we live, as long as we have breath, we will do spiritual battle all our lives. Now, that's the first thing we've got to realize. We are engaged in a battle for the long haul. As long as you live, you will always have to contend with sin. You will always have to contend with the devil who wants to exploit that sin, as we, we shall see. So Jesus, while Jesus' temptations were all external, because he had no sin nature, right? That, that means his temptations were all external. On the other hand, the major source of our temptations are not external, but internal. And that's why we have read James 1, verses 13 through 15, because it emphasizes that the primary source of our problem is ourselves. 
Now, if you look at uh, turning back to James 1, you see there in James 1, it talks about that, first of all, we need to recognize it says that God will not tempt us. He does not lead us into temptation. Well, now, the Bible does say that God does test us. But in his testing of us, it is a testing to see if we are going to have the faith that trusts God, that believes only in his promises. Because we're told that God tested the children of Israel in the wilderness, and they failed the test. But he did not lead them out into the wilderness with the desire that they would fall into sin. No, he led them out there, presented a scenario for them that, they might, that he might see in their heart. Did they really trust him and believe him? And many, disappointingly, did not uh, pass the test. So what does James 1.14 say? That the source of our temptations is quite clearly our own lusts. And when they are aroused, when those lusts are aroused, that is, when they are enticed, they carry us away. Now, the imagery here is significant. It's the imagery of being pregnant and giving birth. That's the imagery here. And, and therefore, it says once, well, once someone is physically pregnant, the natural course of events is to give birth to that child. Well, what it says here, once lust has been conceived, Unless something doesn't change, once conceived, it will give birth, as it were, to the actual transgressions. That's what our text says. It says here that when lust is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. So we must see then how this is being uh, used. We need to understand how the word lust is used. Lust is a sin. All lusts are sins. We, we're told, as we, when we get to the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus makes this very clear, uh, <clears throat> that a sin is internalized, and that our thought processes are, are sinful, and that certain lusts are sinful. But the point of the text is, James is bringing out how this sinful process usually works. We must learn, in other words, here's what we've got to do. We've got to learn to manage those prevalent lusts in the power of the Spirit. Those lusts that are so prone to cause us so much grief in this world. So... One of the most important things that you and I can ever understand is that we have to understand the depth of our own sins. And that though we are delivered from the slavery to those sins, we have to understand just how bad we still are, even as Christians. We need to understand what the Scripture means by the term Lost. And you understand why I talked about meddling earlier. Uh, because we're going to take a look at a lot of passages uh, concerning this. You know, the thing about it is, uh, the 
the mistake that so many make is that we restrict lust to just one area, thinking that it only refers to sexual sins. But that's not how the Bible presents lust. In fact, it's not even the most primary use of the word for lusts. And it's only one of the many lusts that the Bible says of the flesh. So, what have I, in terms of Bible interpretation, what have I always encouraged you to understand? Words mean what they mean in their in their context. So what we're going to do is do a very brief study of some passages to see how that word, that's translated as lust, is used in the scriptures so that we understand better about what we're contending with. So, most often, uh, sin, or the word lust, is used to refer to a sinful desire. And that is a predominant use. But, that word also is used. You ever heard of that passage where it says the spirit lusts to envy? You go, oh, what in the world? The spirit lusts to envy is how the King James says. It earnestly desires fidelity or faithfulness to God is what that says. So there is a positive use of the word, but we're not going to concentrate on that. We're going to concentrate on the, the negative uses because that's what James 1 is dealing with. So one of the first passages, and we're going to just take a look at the passages, move on to the next, to do a very quick word study of, of lust. For the, so the first passage to turn to is Romans chapter 13, verse 14. Romans 13, verse 14. It says, But put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provisions for the flesh in regard to its lusts. Now, noteworthy, the, uh, the idea that we need to understand is this. Flesh has its lusts. And note the command. Put on the Lord Jesus and make no provision for the lusts of the flesh. Turn with me to Galatians chapter 5. Look at verse 16. The text says here, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out, now the New American says, the desire of the flesh. But that word desire is our word. In fact, King James says the lust of the flesh here. So the flesh has its lusts. Take a look while you're there in Galatians 5, look at verse 24. It says, Now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. And the word desires there is our word, lusts. And so the Christians, though they have crucified the flesh and its desires, meaning, now understand this, that when it says crucified, put to death, it doesn't necessarily mean eradication. It means it doesn't dominate over us anymore. And we know that it can't mean complete eradication because Paul said they still existed in his own life, right? Romans 7. In fact, James says those lusts are still there and how we're to deal with them. 
So in crucifying the flesh and its lust, does it mean the complete eradication, although that may be the goal, what it is saying, those lusts don't dominate us anymore like they once did. And so when we talk about the mortification of the lust of the flesh, it may not be complete eradication, though that is the goal. It means that there are, there are and can be victories over the lust of the flesh and that they don't dominate us, and we'll discuss that more later. But turn over to 2 Timothy chapter 4. 2 Timothy 4, verses 3 and 4. For the time will come when they shall not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires, meaning their own lusts is the word there, and will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. So, so the Bible is talking about, first of all, that the flesh has its lusts. So what are these specific lusts of the flesh? We'll turn to Jude 16. It's only one chapter, of course, in Jude. So verse 16. Jude 16. Let's back up to verse 15. Or 14. And about these also Enoch in the seventh generation of Adam prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord came with many thousands of holy ones to execute judgment upon all, to convict all the ungodly of their ungodly deeds, which they have done in an ungodly way, and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These, now that was these referring to the ungodly. These are grumblers, finding fault, falling after their own lusts. They speak arrogantly, flattering people for the sake of gaining an advantage. So what does our text say? What are some of the manifestations of the, the lust of the flesh? Well, right here it says, did you ever think of grumbling to being a lust? That's what it says. Uh, finding fault, harshness, criticalness, following after their own lust, they speak. So it's now telling us some more about what those lusts are. Arrogance, arrogantly. Being arrogant is a lust of the flesh. Here's another one. Flattering people for the sake of gaining an advantage. That's a lust of the flesh. We think about what's the difference between a compliment and flattery. Well, in flattery, you just you got some reason, some thing you're trying to manipulate to gain an advantage, so you flatter someone. That's a lust of the flesh. We need to understand that's part of the flesh. Could you ever thought of those things as being part of the lust of the flesh? Well, right there it is. It says it is. But we're not through. Turn over to uh, Ephesians chapter 4. Look at verses uh, 22 and 23. Ephesians uh, 4. That in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the, the what? The lust of deceit. Deceitfulness is a, is a lust of the flesh. And so, and how do you, how do you combine it, combat it? 
when it says, be renewed in the spirit of your mind. But we're going to reserve that later to all the positive things that you and I need to do to, to combat against the lust of the flesh. Turn over to Titus chapter 3. Look at verse 3. For we also were once foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. Well, guess what? The list has expanded. To what? Disobedience in any form is a lust of the flesh. The desire not to obey the scriptures, uh, de- uh, being deceived, deceitfulness, uh, pleasure, spending our life on pleasures. Uh, malice is a lust of the flesh. Envy is a lust of the flesh. Hatefulness, hating one another, is a lust of the flesh. But we're not through yet. <laughs> Turn to First Timothy 6.9. But those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires. That word desires is our word there for flesh. I mean for lust. Which plunge men into ruin and destruction. So what we see here is that the love of money leads to many harmful lusts. And what is that harmful lust? Greed. Greed is at the back, is at the at the source of that love for money. Now a lot of misquote the passage, say money is the root of all evil. Money's not the root of all evil, but the love of it is the root of all sorts of lusts, like greed. Turn over to First uh, Corinthians chapter ten. Look at verse six. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 6. Talking about all of Israel that had been baptized in the Red Sea, but it came out and then it says God wasn't pleased with most of them. And it says now, verse 6, Now these things happened as examples for us that we should not crave evil things they also craved. So that word craved in the New American Standard is the word epithumia, which is the word for lust. So this cravings, this inordinate cravings, is said to be a lust of the flesh. And concerning that evil craving, turn with me in the Old Testament to Numbers chapter 11. Look at verse 4. And the interesting it says, And the rabble who were among them had greedy desires. And also the sons of Israel wept again and said, who will give us meat to eat? Then look at verse 34 of Numbers 11. So the name of the place was called Kabroth Hatavah, because there they buried the people who had been greedy, who craved inordinately, whose lust got the best of them there. And it says they had the lust of greed that led to their rebellion against God. Now, turn to Romans 7. We're almost through with our cursory study. Look at Romans 7, verse 7. 
What shall we say then? Is the law sin? May it never be. On the contrary, I would not have come to know sin except through the law. For I would not have known about coveting if the law had not said, you shall not covet. And you say, well, I don't see lust there. Guess what the word coveting is? It's the Greek word epithumia. It's our root word for lusts. So what does that tell us? Coveting is one of the lusts of the flesh, is what it says. You see how broad it is, how comprehensive, how pervasive the, the enemy is? Well, let me conclude the study briefly with um, the word study, that is, not the sermon. <laughs> with 1 Peter 2.11. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11. Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. There you have it. These fleshly lusts, these lusts which are of the flesh, wage war with the soul. Now, is that not what Paul had been saying? That he sees within himself the, the two laws. On one hand, he jointly concurs with the law of God. But then, on the other hand, he sees what's within him. And there's this fight. It is a constant battle, brethren. So what we need to understand is that how the Bible uses its terms. So that when the Bible talks about the flesh, it is a reference to our sinful nature that is still with us. Though not in bondage, it's still with us. That's the flesh. It's called the old man in the scripture. And when it refers to the lusts of the flesh, it simply means how that sinful nature manifests its sinfulness. It manifests its sinfulness through the various lusts that we just take a look at. That's why it's called the lusts of the flesh. And whether it be unlawful sensual thoughts, to covetousness, to, to malice, to arrogance, to grumbling, to finding fault, to deceit, that's how the flesh manifests its lusts. And so we could say that the lusts, liken it to this, the lusts are the rotten fruit of a tree, of a sin nature tree. And we still have the vestiges of that sin nature within us. You know, the words of John Owen, the Puritan John Owen and John Calvin are very helpful. John Owen was one of the great English Puritans of the 17th century. In fact, John Owen, in, during the 1640s, was the, I would say this would be a privilege, uh, he was the personal chaplain to Oliver Cromwell. So if Oliver Cromwell had a theological issue, he'd just, he just call up, not on the phone, <laughs> but he would call over uh, John Owen. He was his personal chaplain. And so it's no, uh, I don't think coincidence, the greatness of Oliver Cromwell ties to, as J.I. Packer considers probably John, uh, John Owen, one of the greatest, if not one of the gr greatest reformed thinkers of all time. And one of the great works that John Owen wrote was a book called Temptation and Sin. And I want to, it's so good, I want to quote 
to you a portion of what John Owen said in his great work, Temptation and Sin. Here's what Owen says. To mortify a sin is not to utterly kill, root it out, and destroy it, that it should have no more hold at all or residence in our hearts. It is true that is what is aimed at, but this is not in this life to be accomplished. There is no man that truly sets himself to mortify any sin, but he aims at, intends, desires its utter destruction, that it should leave neither root nor fruit in the heart of life. He would so kill it that it should never move nor sit or stir anymore, cry or call, seduce or tempt to eternity. It's not being is the thing aimed at. Now, though doubtless there may be the spirit of and the grace of Christ, a wonderful success and eminency of victory against sin may be attained so that a man may have almost constant triumph over it, yet an utter killing and destruction of it that it should not be is not in this life to be expected. This Paul assures us in Philippians 3.12, not as though I had already attained either were already perfect. Now, that's what Owen says in his book. Now Owen goes on to say another very helpful thing. On page uh, 166 he says this, Concerning the law of sin in the life of the believer, he says, It always abides in the soul. It is never absent. Wherever you are, whatever you are about, this law of sin is always in you, in the best that you do, in the worst. Men little consider what a dangerous companion is always at home within them. There is a living coal continually in their houses, which if not looked into, will fire them and may consume them. Oh, the woeful security of poor souls. How little do the most of men think of the inbred enemy that is never from home. Now, that was Owen talking about the nature of of sin and the nature of the battle. Let me share something from Calvin in his Institutes of the Christian Religion. Calvin, in Book 4, Chapter 15, Section 11, says... The other point is that the perversity never ceases in us, but continually bears new fruits that we have described as the works of the flesh. Just as a glowing furnace continually emits flame and sparks, gives forth water, for lust never actually dies and is extinguished in men until, freed from death by the body of death, they are divested of themselves. Baptism indeed promises to us that the drowning of our Pharaoh and the mortification of our sin, but not so that it no longer exists or gives us trouble, but only that it may not overcome us. And so Calvin goes on to talk about how in all our lives we have this sin nature, these lusts that are the manifestations of this nature that will always give us trouble, that we're always doing battle with. And so, the person who thinks, who's so naive to think that I have arrived or that I have forever killed one of those various lusts of the flesh have set themselves up for a great fall. Because the scripture says in 1 Corinthians 10 verse 12, 
He that thinks he stands, take heed, lest he fall. It's always lurking. The enemy is always lurking. So the point of this is that we will always be fighting lusts of the flesh. And and these lusts will plague us, and we can get victories over them. But if we think they are forever dealt with, we are mistaken. Because they will only be there in some other point, some opportune time, that the devil will come and show us it was always there, and you weren't doing what you were supposed to do. So why did the scripture say, make no provision for the flesh and its lusts? Because that's what it says. As the old saying goes, I have faced the great enemy, and it is me. I am my own worst enemy. You are your own worst enemy. Because of the indwelling nature, that sin nature that's there, and those lusts that are there, waiting to be enticed, we have to understand we are our own worst enemies. And that's what James 1 has said. What is the source of our temptations but our lusts? That's the source. So the devil is the tempter. But he... The devil cannot make you sin as a Christian. Now, I'm going to date myself age-wise. During the 1960s, there was a television program called Laugh-In. And one of the comedians, the black comedians that was on there, was a guy named Flip Wilson. And he had one line that was always there. The devil made me do it. The devil made me do it. The devil made me do it. He's always doing something. The devil made me do it. Well, the devil doesn't make any Christian do something. Now, the unbeliever is a slave to the devil. It's a pawn of the devil. That's maybe the case there. But for the Christian, you're not a slave of sin anymore. You're not a slave of the devil. So the devil cannot make you sin. Does that make the devil less dangerous in your life? Well, no. Though the devil doesn't make me sin, I can say, you know, I, have, I am quite capable of sinning on my own. Without the devil's help. And so are you. What did we see is one of the various lusts of the flesh that Jude 16 brought out. Arrogance. Pride is one of the lusts of the flesh. And really it's the attitude that I am not like other men. I'm better than other men in some respect. So it's that pride. And you know who in Scripture is, 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 is our great object lesson? Is the Apostle Peter. The Apostle Peter. Turn with me to Mark chapter 14. Mark 14. Look at verses 29 to 31. Now they're at the Last Supper. And we see... Jesus is talking here, and he says, verse 29, But Peter said to him, Jesus, Even though all may fall away, yet I will not. Jesus said to him, Truly I say to you, that you yourself this very night, before cock crows twice, shall three times deny me. But Peter kept saying, insisting, 
Even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And they were all saying the same thing, too. He kept insisting, not me, not me, Jesus, you can count on me. No, you're going to deny me. No, I'm not. I'm not going to deny you, Jesus. So what was Jesus' response to him? We read that. Turn over to Luke, Luke 22. And look at verses 31 to 33. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail, and you, once, when once you have been turned again, strengthen your brothers. And what was Peter's response? Lord, I'm with you, ready to go both to prison and to death. Still didn't believe it. Do you see how audacious, how proud, how naive Peter was about his own sins and the own lust of the flesh, of which the Bible says pride is one of those? He kept sinking, uh, kept insisting he wouldn't do it. But I want to stress something very important that Jesus said to Peter. Peter, I have prayed for you. Now, what a blessed thought. Peter, you're going to deny me. You are going to. But I've prayed for you, Peter. And that when you turn again, so Jesus knows he's going to turn again. He'll repent. What a blessed thought that Jesus was praying for him. Now, so that we read in Scripture, Peter fell greatly, but his fall was not to his utter ruin. But that was not the case with Judas Iscariot. We're told that, well, before I talk about Judas, when the situation arose, when Jesus was arrested, and people said, you've been with him. And in that weakness, he who said he never would deny him, he will end up denying him three times. And when that cock crowed twice, all of a sudden it came down on Peter, and it says he remembered the words of Jesus. And what did he do? He went out and wept bitterly. The guilt, this was so overwhelming to him that he who thought he would die for Jesus denied him. The Bible says he even cursed in denying Jesus. And he, and he went out and bitterly wept. But what about Judas Iscariot? Peter is filled with guilt, weeps over his guilt. We're told that Judas Iscariot, when he betrayed Jesus, we don't see in the Scripture Jesus praying for Judas. In fact, in Mark 14, verse 21, Jesus says, it would have been better for that man never to have been born. Talking about Judas Iscariot. We're told that what was the, uh, the price for the betrayal? 30 pieces of silver. But when Jesus was arrested and, and Judas saw what was going on, he probably never thought he would ever get to that point. But when he saw that he was condemned by the Sanhedrin, he was filled with guilt, went back to the Sanhedrin, and threw the 30 pieces of silver, like prophecy said, to him and says, 
Oh, I was picked on by God. No, it says, I have betrayed innocent blood. And the Sanhedrin, they go, what is that to us, Jesus? We got who we wanted. If you're feeling guilty, so what? And what does Judas do? Judas goes out and he hangs himself. He never repented. His guilt led to his suicide. And that led, you see, he's as good an example as we can see in the Scripture. Once that greed manifested itself, because the Scripture says that Judas was the, um, carried the money box for the disciples and would often pilfer from the money box. And when the, the situation arose uh, for the betrayal of Jesus, he saw it as a mean to get some money. But he didn't think it would lead to what it led to. But his lust of the flesh and his greed led to his his physical demise that when lust is conceived, because what does the Bible say at, uh, there at the Last Supper? That whoever gets his morsel with me, he's the betrayer, and it was Judas. Go do quickly, Judas, what you must do. And it said Satan filled Judas's heart to betray him. And so once that lust was conceived, it gave birth to the actual betrayal of Jesus. And it led to his physical and his spiritual death in hell. So let the Judas' example be an example of how the devil looks for the opportune moment to take advantage of our weaknesses. Well, not only with Judas, but with Peter. He looked for the opportune moment. And it says that when that opportune moment comes, and that's why the Scripture says, Satan has demanded to sift you like wheat. The devil is not omniscient. He may appear to be omniscient. There are some things we don't understand. He has his dominion and his minions that are everywhere. We don't know how many demons there are. He almost seems omniscient, but he's not God. But he's been around, and he's very observant, and he knows the weaknesses of men, and he knew Peter's weakness. He knew Judas's weakness, and he went after them. We're told that even after the temptation of Jesus, Mark says that the devil fled from him to look for an, another opportune time. And so what we see here is that the devil will look for the opportune time to entice your lusts of the flesh. That's what he does. Now, after the Lord's Supper, Jesus went out to the Garden of Gethsemane to pray. And he took Peter, James, and John along with him, and he said, sit and watch with me, pray with me. Well, basically, to watch with them as he went off, Jesus went off to pray in a nearby area of the garden. Turn with me to Matthew 26, and you'll see this. We have discussed this before. Matthew 26, beginning at verse 36, here we have the incident. Matthew 26, 36 through 41 reads, Then Jesus came with them to a place called Gethsemane and said to his disciples, Sit here while I go over there and pray. 
And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee and began to be grieved and distressed. Then he said to them, My soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch with me. And he went a little beyond them and fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, is it possible? Let this cup pass from me, yet not as I will, but as thou wilt. And he came to the disciples, found them sleeping, and said to Peter, So, you couldn't, you men could not keep watch with me for one hour? Keep watching and praying that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. So if you and I are going to engage in the spiritual battle, Jesus has already told us the plan. Watch and pray. Now, in fact, the Greek language is even more precise, as I've said to you. It's a present tense command. Present tense means constantly doing something. So what Jesus is saying, constantly be watching, constantly be praying. Why? That you may not enter to temptation. Now, Jesus knows something about us. He says, the spirit is willing. Do you think Peter did not was not sincere? I believe Peter was sincere when he said, I'll die for you, Jesus. But he just didn't understand just how weak he was. He says, keep watching. He says, the Spirit. Paul, what does Paul say? With my mind, I joyfully concur with the law of God, but I see another law at work in me, making, uh, causing me the sin to do what I don't really want to do. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. You've got to know your enemy. You're your worst enemy. And so here we see, we have to constantly be watching and praying so that the lusts of the flesh are not enticed and then carry out its natural course. Which means, in the watching, we need to be prepared and not get caught off guard. That's what watching is. Preparation. Don't get caught off guard. Don't be caught sleeping. You know, the devil knows our weaknesses. And he looks for the opportune time, as I've said, to exploit the lusts of our flesh. And he cannot make his sin, but he can bring scenarios about knowing the likelihood of us falling into the sin. And that's what he did with Peter. It's what he did with Judas. It's what he does with a lot of people. He looks for that moment. And, and, And it's the time that you're least maybe thinking it. Owen made this comment. He says, always be aware that in the moments of your greatest triumphs in in life, be on the lookout because the devil's there to come in and want to do his damage. I thought that was very insightful of Owen at that point because it has worked out. Even Elijah, in his great moment in his defeat of the prophets of Baal, what happened with him? Jezebel, Ahab's wife, says, I'm going to kill you, Elijah. I will hunt you down until I get you. And what does he do? The guy who had just won his great victory is running for his life, fearful of Jezebel. 
You never know where the enemy lurks. And so we see here that <clears throat> he knows our weaknesses. And we got to be watching. Now, you, you know when you watch, we talked about the armor of God. Here's part of watching. Take up the shield of faith with which the Bible says in Ephesians 6, does it not? You'll quench all the fiery darts of the devil. If you use the shield of faith. Be watching. Because you don't know when the enemy is going to shoot his arrow. It's when you go, Hey, Les, what are you going to do? And then you catch an arrow on the chest. When you just take your, we're watching, take your eye, take my eyes off, and not being watching as I should, and then the evil one's arrows come and strike home. And so we see here, what is this faith by which you, the shield of faith by which you quench all the fiery darts? It's belief in the promises of God. That's what faith is. Faith is confidence in the promises of God. And that's what you hold up. The Word of God, you hold up that faith, and when those darts come, you can block them. Where do we find those promises? Right here. In the Bible is where you find those promises. So, brethren... If you and I are not regularly in this book, I mean regularly, how do you expect to escape the hour of temptation? If you're not in this book regularly, you're not watching. I'm not watching. By the way... 1 Corinthians 10.13. Turn to 1 Corinthians 10.13. No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man, and God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also, that you may be able to endure it. Now, what is the way of escape? The way of escape, my friends, is the Word of God regularly read and meditated in the power of the Spirit of God to apply that Word, because if you don't apply it, nothing will change. But it's taking that Word and applying it, and that is the way of escape when the temptation comes. It says you can't escape that hour. Turn to Revelation 3, 8 through 10. Revelation 3. A message of Jesus to the church of Philadelphia. Beginning in verse 8. I know your deeds. Behold, I put before you an open door which no one can shut. Because you have little power and have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will cause those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them to come and bow down at your feet and 
to know that I have loved you because you have kept the word of my perseverance. I will also keep you from the hour of temptation, that hour which is about to come upon the whole world to test those who dwell upon the earth. Keep my word. There's no mystery. Brethren, the more sanctified that you are in the word of God, you're not as frequently to succumb to the flesh, the lust of your flesh. The more that you are sanctified in the word, the less likely you will succumb to the lusts of your flesh. But you have to know the word of God, first of all. But it doesn't stop there, not only knowing you've got to be determined to keep it. Now, what did James 1.22 say? But prove yourselves doers of the word and not hearers only. And then turn with me. Take a look at what Jesus said in Luke 6. Look at Luke 6, beginning at verse 46. And why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and acts upon them, I'll show you whom he's like. He's like a man who built a house and dug deep and laid a foundation upon the rock. And when a flood arose, the torrent burst against that house and could not shake it because it had been well built. But the one who heard and has not acted accordingly is like a man who's built a house upon the ground without a foundation. And the torrent burst against it, and immediately it collapsed, and the ruin of that house was great. There you have it. I mean, Jesus put it right there for us. There is no way that you and I will escape falling victim to the lust of our own flesh unless we are determined to put the Word of God into practice in our life. You can't be a hearer only. If you hear the Word, you got to do it. And guess what? You have the power. Who's available to you? The Spirit of God is available to you. So it is possible through the Spirit to give you the victory over a lot of the... the the battles that we are engaged in. You know, in this regard, no Christian should give any excuse why they cannot do better. Because the power source is available to all of us. So we really have no excuse. And you know, the sad thing here is, we do, as Christians, sin against better knowledge, don't we? We do know better. Now, the non-Christian, we expect them to give give in because they're a slave to their lust and they're a slave to the devil. We expect that. But we ought to expect more out of Christians because that slavery has been broken and we have a power source. So we really have no excuse. So when we do sin, it's against greater knowledge. You know, David prays, as we said, James says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. David prayed in Psalm 25, verse 21, Let integrity and uprightness preserve me, for I wait for thee. Let 
my, let integrity and uprightness preserve me. Meaning, seeking godliness, having a godly life. There was a time, of course, where he didn't do that and paid a great price. You know, in his book, again, John Owen said in his book, Temptation and and sin, he says, this constant universal keeping of Christ's word of patience will keep the heart and soul in such a frame so as wherein no prevalent temptation can seize upon it and so as to totally prevail. Owen says, fail a man in his integrity and he has an open place for temptation to enter, end of quote. So Owen has a big section in his book on the importance of being in the Word of God. Now, finally, we said you not only watch, but you've got to pray. Pray that we don't enter into temptation. Turn back to that passage in Ephesians 6, and you'll see the importance of the prayer, of prayer in our lives. Look at Ephesians 6. Look at verses 17 through 19. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Now, verse 16, he talks about the shield of faith. Then he says, take the helmet of salvation and take the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, with all prayer. Catch that? With all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the Spirit, and with this in view, be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. Now, doesn't Paul say exactly what Jesus said? Watch and pray. But take the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Put up that shield to block those fiery darts. I mentioned to you how blessed a thing it is to have Jesus pray for you. Jesus prayed for Peter that Peter's fall would not be to his utter ruin, and it wasn't. Turn with me to Hebrews 4 and let this blessed thought sink in. Hebrews 4. Look at verses 14 through 16. And this brings us back to Jesus' role as mediator now. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and may find grace to help in time of need. Brother, this is what you've got to do. You've got Jesus, your mediator, who's opened the way to the Holy of Holies in heaven. And Jesus says, he understands your fight. He understands the power of the temptation. And though he may not have been able to succumb to it, it doesn't mean he didn't understand it. He understands our weaknesses. And he says, this is why you need to come to me. You need to come to me in prayer with boldness to find what? Grace. Mercy. To fight the battle. Because you're not going to win it on your own. But come boldly in prayer to me. And I will give you the grace. And I will give you the mercy. 
Turn back to um, James 4 for a moment. That passage that we read earlier, and look at all these exhortations in verses 7 through 10. It says, Submit therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee to you. How do you submit to God? You submit to his word. That's how you submit to God. You draw near to him. It says, draw near to him. Well, how do you draw near to God? You draw near to God through his word, right? You draw near to God when you're on your knees praying for grace and mercy in a time of need. That's how you draw near to God. What else does he say here? He says, purify, cleanse your hands, you sinners. Meaning, I desire to repent. Though you know those lusts of the flesh that are so prevalent to drag you down, you plead and cleanse my hands, Lord. I don't want to be this way. And it says, purify your hearts. Purify your hearts. You know, 1 Peter 1.22 says, Since you have an obedience to the truth, purify your souls for a sincere love of the brethren, fervently love one another. You know how you purify your heart? You ask God for that grace and mercy to help you love as you ought to love. That's how you purify your heart. James says, notice that exhortation. Be miserable. Have you ever heard of an exhortation to be miserable and mourn? Well, right here it is. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your, it says, your joy to gloom. Dear ones, do your sins, do the lusts of your flesh bother you so much at times it drives you to tears? Of just how bad I really am. Have you ever weeped over the proclivities of sin in your life? That's what that's what the exhortation is saying. Mourn, weep. The sin is so easy to beset us. What is your attitude? Do you weep over your sins? Do you justify your sins? Do you shift the blame to other people like Adam shifted blame to Eve? Oh God, the woman you gave to me, she made me eat the fruit. He's just a blame shifter. Trying to excuse his sin. He blamed other people for his sins. Others can't make you sin either. Devil can't make you sin. Nobody else can make you sin. We sin ourselves. We've got to learn to take responsibility for our sins. We've got to learn to understand the, the depth of the lust of those flesh. And what does James 4.10 say? Humble yourselves in the sight of God and in His presence, and then He will exalt you. Don't be like the Pharisee who looked at the tax collector and says, Lord, I'm glad I'm not like him. And the tax collector was over there, head bowed down, beating his breast, saying, God, forgive me, the sinner. Do you think he was broken? 
He was broken. He knew he was worthy of condemnation. And he couldn't even, as it were, look God in the face because of the death of his sin. And Jesus says, who went away justified? The man who humbled himself in the sight of God is the one who will be exalted. You've got to come to God in prayer with a broken and contrite heart. Taking full responsibility for your own sin. And the scripture says, don't think the proud will ever receive anything from the Lord. But the humble man will be exalted. And when we come in, when, so when we to tie this all together, what is the scripture telling us? We've seen the great enemy and it's us. We're, we're our own worst enemy. And we have to watch and pray over ourselves with great intensity. Because we know how weak we are. And if we don't think we're weak, like Peter didn't think he was weak, you're going to set yourself up for a fall. No one is beyond the, the temptation of the lust of their flesh. They it will always be there to be captivated. And that's why you always have to be fighting. You always have to be fighting. You always have to be watching. Always putting the shield of faith up. Trusting the promises in the Word of God. Meditating and on your knees begging to God, Lord, I'm not worthy. I'm not worthy. Give me grace. Give me mercy that I may do the battle. Because without you, I won't make it. The Lord had victory over temptation. And though it may not be a complete victory, Total in this world, as the scripture says, we can nonetheless have more victories than defeats if we exercise what the scriptures tells us to do. Let us pray.